So if you can remember 24 hours ago, actually a little bit longer than 24 hours because we're late today. <laughs> uh, but 24 hours ago, we talked about how Jesus prioritized. He prioritized uh, the 12 disciples investing in these 12 apostles uh, who would take the, the revelation of who he is and lay that as the foundation for the church throughout the millennium. He, 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 Jesus himself is the cornerstone. We build on him as the foundation. But the Jesus we build on is the Jesus that had revealed himself to the apostles and the apostles revealed him to us, either through the preaching of his word or the reading of his word, but definitely through his word. So that the priority, that one of the priorities we need to have that Jesus sets for us as his people is knowing his word. We build on that. All right? So Jesus is building his church, and he's building it on the foundation he laid through the apostles and prophets. So today we're going to talk about how one of the, one of the ways that building takes place. If you remember yesterday we talked about that verse from uh, 1 Peter, that, that we are living stones. Christ came as a living stone, and we are living stones being built together as a spiritual house. And you might say that the mortar that holds us together is prayer. That what knits us is when knits us together is when we are seeking the Father together. We're praying together. So we want to see that Jesus prioritized prayer in a way that was unique. He prioritized prayer in a way that was that made his disciples thirsty for the same thing he had. That's what we want to look at in uh, Luke chapter eleven. Jesus teaches his people. What loving, faithful prayer looks like. Now, how many of you guys, even in me saying we're going to talk about prayer, or seen on the schedule, feel a little bit guilty? Anybody here feel a little bit guilty about their prayer life? Don't we all feel that way? And, and you know what that is? That's the power of hell that we just sang about. That's the schemes of bad religion that tell us that prayer is another duty that we have to do before God. Here's a burden given to you by God. You best be praying. But Jesus did never, never did Jesus treat prayer as a burden. Jesus would minister all day long and sneak off and be alone with his Father. Because it wasn't a burden for him. It was a blessing. He recognized what that relationship was. And there's something about his prayer life that we'll see right here in verse 1 of chapter 11 that intrigued the disciples. It says, in verse 1 of chapter 11, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, this is, of course, talking about John the Baptist, isn't it? Here's what's interesting. Why the comparison? Why are, why are they comparing what, what John taught about prayer than what they saw in Jesus praying. Why the comparison? Well, part of it is we know that at least, at least one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles of Jesus, was first a disciple of John. We know at least one of them was. L listen to this. Oh, do I have it down? No, I don't have it down. Don't listen to this. Sorry. <laughs> Take my word for it. It's true. <laughs> but but we know that Andrew, at least Andrew, was uh, one of John's disciples before he started following Jesus. And of course, John's whole ministry was, hey, I can't even tie a shoe. You follow him. That's the Lamb of God slain for the world. You, you follow him. 
But John had taught his disciples to pray. And I, I, I picture in my mind that, that John was taught how to pray in a way that was real, seeing God as real and being humble and being quick to turn to God no matter what kinds of sins you've been involved in, but to turn away, trust God for power, turn away from God. Just this kind of sense of the reality of God. I can see John the Baptist teaching his disciples this. But then they see Jesus pray. And when they see Jesus pray, they're like, you got to teach us to pray. John taught us this up. You got to teach us to pray. This is, we, oh, yeah, you're doing something we haven't seen before. Because here's the reality, okay? And this is what we're talking about if you want to fill in your notes. The first main point is we want to talk about the relationship that Jesus enjoyed. The relationship that Jesus enjoyed. And here's what we're talking about in verse 1. That Jesus enjoyed unique relationship with the Father. Unique. None other like it. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. There's an eternal reality in the Trinity where God has enjoyed Himself, the three in one, our eternally relational God has enjoyed Himself forever, and that didn't stop when Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh. That He still enjoyed this unique relationship. And when the disciples say, Jesus, you've you got to teach us to pray. You're enjoying something we haven't seen before. You've got to teach us to pray. I find it incredibly important that Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, forget it, bud. <laughs> what I got with my father, you're never going to have. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, no, 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 we have a unique relationship. You're never going to have this. Does that intrigue you at all? Now, now, we can go two ways from right here. This can go really weird, pear-shaped, kind of weird heresy. I'm a little God. I can pray like Jesus prayed. Or can get into something where we recognize, what has Jesus provided for us? Here's the reality. When John talks about Jesus' ministry uh, at large, everything that they saw and observed in Jesus, he, he, he says this in the very beginning of John's gospel. He says, the Word became flesh. That's God the Son, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says this, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John recognizes, in fact, when John writes the gospel, of course, he's a bit of an old man. And he, he recognizes after years and years and years of one walking with Jesus for the three and a half years, being taught by Jesus, going to Jesus University, good place to be. And then, Knowing Jesus as the resurrected Savior and seeing Him ascend to heaven and then serving Jesus by making Jesus known for decade upon decade upon decade. When he writes his gospel, he goes, Man, what we saw in Jesus, what we know in Jesus is the very glory of God. Something unique about God. And this is what I think they were beginning to see when they saw Jesus pray. They saw something of of God showing Himself, God the Father showing Himself to God the Son, God the Son enjoying God the Father, that they saw something in His prayer life. They thought, that's different. But, but here's what we see when we get into verse 2, okay? Jesus decides, He says, yes, I'm going to teach you to pray. He says in verse 2, notice, And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now some of your verses, if you have New King James or King James, 
It has more words than that. It has kind of what you see in Matthew's gospel. Nothing wrong with that. That's cool. Uh, I think Luke's given an abbreviated version because it's probably a, a different time when Jesus was teaching this. We know that Matthew 6 is Sermon on the Mount, right? So Jesus is teaching prayer in the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things we know by reading the different Gospels is Jesus would teach the same thing more than once. That's a good thing, guys. It's a good thing. And here, so I think I hear this is a different time. And he's wanting to teach them something about, about prayer. And so when they say, Lord, there's something different about how you talk to the Father. We want to know how this works. He says, okay, here's how it works. When you pray, pray, Father. Pray, Father, holy is your name. Pray, Father, your kingdom come. What's going on here? Well, this is your second letter B filling, for those of you guys here filling this in. He's basically saying that, that it's basically that Jesus is calling us to trust the unique character of God. Our prayer life cannot ever be securely based on our character. This is why we feel guilty about prayer. Because we know we don't pray as we should. We sense we could have more if we prayed more. We recognize that we put other stupid things before prayer. Think about it. We scroll social media instead of talking to the creator of the universe. Think about it for a second. I look at pictures of food <laughs> instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying, Father, I need some time. How stupid is that? How stupid is that? We binge watch television shows. In fact, we'll, we would rather think about God than talk about God. Why? Because we put way too much emphasis on our character. Either we think we're better than we are. You know, actually, I'm, I'm clever. I'll just think about God and God will meet me there. Or we're so condemned by our lack of godly character, we go, oh, forget it. Why do I even try? I'll never get it right. But Jesus is saying in this prayer, teaching us to pray, he's saying, listen, it can never be based on our character. It has to be based on his. It's got to be him that attracts us. Gosh, I've been a Christian for 35 years, and I still find myself struggling to believe. Like, I'm almost pinching myself. Is it true? Can I... When I've, I've just blown it, but I can say, Father, I messed up. Forgive me. And he's going to say, I forgive you. Let's start fresh. Is that actually true? It's absolutely true according to the scripture. It's totally true. I had plans this morning. My alarm went off at 5.30 so I could seek the Lord. Went quickly off at 5.30. And I stayed in bed till about 6.30. I was comfy and warm under the duvet. I didn't want to get up. And I, and, I, and I did feel, I have, I'll, I'll totally confess, I felt totally condemned about that. How can I teach out in prayer when I was too lazy to get up and pray? <laughs> and so, so then we, we get up, and at 6.30, and I picked up a bag of rubbish, not to make you feel guilty, but a whole bag of rubbish. <laughs> and, and then we got ready to start doing food. And, and as I'm doing food, I'm feeling like, Lord, why am I flipping pancakes? And I should be praying. I should be praying. You know, and, and, I, and I'm feeling convicted. And the Lord reminds me, wait a second, why should you be praying? Well, because you're good, Lord. I'm supposed to be teaching on prayer. I'm supposed to be showing how good you are. And it's like, well, have, have I changed? Am I less available to you as you're flipping pancakes? No, you're not, Lord. But they're kitties' pancakes, and they're so much better than mine. And <laughs> no, no, this is, this is it. The Lord always, listen, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, 
always reminds us of the character of God that we see revealed through Christ and says, that's the motivation to come. And the devil is the one who reminds us, you're the motivation to come, or maybe not to come. God's our motivation for prayer. Nothing more, nothing less. It's the character of God. In fact, when Jesus says, your kingdom come, what are we praying? We're saying, Lord, you are so amazing. Your character is so amazing. We want you to rule over us. Even feels weird saying it. Because our, our nature, our human sinful nature is, I'll have no man rule over me. Thank you very much. I'll rule my own life. But when, the more we see God as revealed through Jesus, the more we're, we're, we're told, we're, we, we sense the Spirit saying, come, draw near, come seek my face. The more we sense that and we respond, yes, Lord, it's you I want, the more we go, and I want you to rule my life because I suck at it. You know exactly what you're doing. I don't. There's a song, I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 27, and I, I kind of have it in my mind in the New King James, but it, where the psalmist says, when you said, Lord, seek my face, I said, Lord, your face I will seek. Who initiates that communion? God does. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. He's, he's not saying, well, if you guys were more spiritual, if you were a bit more disciplined, if you could stay awake one hour, as he has to say in the Garden of Gethsemane, <laughs> if that was always his attitude towards them when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, we'd be hopeless. But he says, no, no, okay, when you pray, pray to the Father. Hallowed is his name. There's none like him. Pray to him. Pray to the Father, whose rule is perfect. He's calling us to trust the unique character of God. We don't pray to some generic God. We pray to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is how Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Uh, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. When you read Paul's prayers in the New Testament, great thing to do. When you read his prayers, you know what you always notice? He's, he's trusting God for things we would never trust God for. And he's trusting God for those things for other people. Can we see how, how, how Jesus praying isn't just about you as an individual or me as an individual enjoying the Lord, but it's about something that we can grow in corporately. Have you had this experience? I've had this experience. Sarah and I uh, spend a lot of time as we drive places praying. And that's not because we're so spiritual, it's because we're always so negligent when we're sitting still. And so we spend a lot of time when we're, we're driving someplace <laughs> praying. And it's amazing how often when we're praying that, that one of us maybe doesn't really feel like doing it. But as we begin to pray, and we pray together, and we, and I like, I'll let them, Sarah, 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 I'll, okay, you start, babe. And so Sarah's driving, and she'll start praying. And as she's praying, I'm trying to concentrate, and I'm having to focus. And then she'll pray something about, to the Lord, that just goes, oh yeah, yeah, God, you're good. And it's not my wife motivating me to pray. It's not the trip motivating me to pray. It's the God she's praying to that wants me, I want to pray to Him too. This is what our praise and worship, as well as our prayer before service, during house group, this is where it's meant to go. Into a place where we say, God, we, we are giving thanks for each other because we see the work of your grace in each other's lives. And Father, we praise you that you have, past tense, delivered us from the domain of darkness that tells us you have no right to approach God. You've delivered us from that domain and you brought us into the rule of your beloved Son. <laughs> 
So we come to you as those who are beloved. You see, this is how, how different this is from it's your duty to pray. Now we get to the rest of this prayer that's often called Lord's Prayer, but really is the disciples' prayer. And we see in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus is actually encouraging a daily dependence upon God. Sometimes I wish that I would, sometimes, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to paint a picture that every time I seek the Lord I feel amazing. Because sometimes you don't feel much different, if I'm being honest. But there are times, I, I'd say, I'd be honest, that there's, there's plenty of times, as many as there's not, when I'm, if I'm really seeking the Lord, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spending some time with the Lord, whether it's with Sarah or just on my own, if we're really seeking the Lord, I'm, I just start rejoicing in how good it is to seek the Lord, okay? But I wish that feeling would just last all day, all week, all month, because then I wouldn't have to do it so much. But you know what? The Lord loves me, and He wants me to be with Him daily, so He makes me daily dependent. And, 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 and experiencing Him once a week or once a month isn't enough. He wants me to daily depend on Him for all things. And I know that because of what He teaches the disciples to pray, what He teaches us to pray. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. Some versions make it sound like give us tomorrow's bread. But it seems pretty clear in the context, especially when you compare this to Matthew's Gospel, that's no, no, pray for your daily bread. This has become more important to Sarah and I as well. The older we get and the less pension we have, <laughs> then we're like, okay, we can't worry about the future. We've got to worry about today. Who, who knows what's going to happen in the future? And it's not, that's not even an escapist, well, hopefully we'll be raptured by then. I do hope we're raptured by then. But it's not that, that's not really what, that's not the escapist in me that's wanting this. It's like, going, Lord, Lord, you want me to trust you today. And what can God do in one day? <laughs> what can God do in a day? He wants us to trust Him today. And this includes not just in our material provision, but daily bread is also, God, I need you to speak to me. Your words are food to me. I need to feed on who you are, as we talked about, uh, uh, I think it was on Sunday, with communion. I need to feed on you. You're, you're the manna I need every day. You're my daily bread. But also, it also has to do with us daily dependent upon Him to have right relationships with both Him and with each other. It's a daily dependence that I'm daily dependent on God for that vertical relationship. It's what He has provided for me in Christ that I can be right with Him. But I'm also daily dependent on, upon that work of Christ to be right with one another, for us to be right with each other. How do I know that? Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. <laughs> now, Jesus, the, the Bible's really clear in James chapter 1, God never leads us into temptation. But the point is, and I think in this context, the point is this. Lord, people can be a trial to us. Because the word for temptation and trial is the same word. Okay? Same word in the original language. Depends on its context. And so I think in this, in this area, it could be that, that Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to, you're going to struggle with relationships. They're going to be the, the, the biggest blessing and the biggest burden in your life. And the way you're going to, to deal with this is you're going to come to me and you say, Lord, would you forgive my sins? And would you help me to forgive the sins that you've done against me today? There's this daily dependence. This is what he's encouraging. Listen, think about this. When it comes to asking and giving thanks to God for daily provision. Listen, 
Therefore, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's supposed to chuck down tomorrow. It doesn't matter. It's a beautiful day today. Amen. Amen. And we've got enough things to deal with today. And who knows, they will be raptured in the day. Right, Greg? <laughs> but also, listen, we need to daily receive and give forgiveness. Have you noticed that the closest relationships you have, or the closer your relationships get, the more painful they get? The more vulnerable you are to your spouse, or to your close mate, or to your parents, or to your children, the more potential you have to be hurt. So you have a choice. You can draw away from them or keep them at arm's length. Or you can say, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Give us today the ability to receive forgiveness from you for not loving the people in front of us. And forgive us the, the grace that we need to forgive them for when they don't love us either. So we can draw near to them. Daily dependence. I don't know if it's just us as uh, those of us from charismatic backgrounds or in charismatic churches. I don't know if we do this because of our charismatic convictions, but it feels like we're more susceptible to wait for the big zap. And then when that zaps over, we kind of wait for the next big zap. Instead of learning to walk daily with God, let the zaps come as God sovereignly desires. <laughs> but walking daily with God, depending upon Him for His provision, depending upon Him for His work of grace in our lives. See, this is the relationship that Jesus enjoyed. Jesus didn't have a place to lay His head. Jesus didn't have... Uh, a retirement plan? Well, the resurrection, I guess. That was his retirement plan. That should be ours. <laughs> what Jesus had was, listen, a unique relationship with the Father that he qualifies us to have because we're in him. Jesus uh, had a unique understanding of who God is, which he reveals to us so we can understand God's unique character. And Jesus had a daily dependence upon his Father. He modeled that for us, and he calls us to Walk in that through prayer. Any of this stuff new to any of you guys? Not really. But it's so easy for us to forget, isn't it? Do you think maybe the devil might be involved in getting us to forget this daily walk with God? So this is we're talking about the relationship that Jesus enjoyed. But also we want to see this now as the... This is their second main point, really. The access... Jesus expected. The access Jesus expected. Not only that he had, but what he's provided. He wants us to expect this kind of access to God. Look what he does. The first thing he does in verses 5 to 8, listen, is he gives us a story to contrast God's willingness. A story to contrast, not confirm, contrast God's willingness. Listen. Verse 5, listen to the story he says. Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me, the door's shut, my children are, are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give anything. Now, now this sounds kind of weird uh, to, uh, to us, but you guys have probably heard this before. In that cultural context, to not be hospitable was akin to being blasphemous. You had to show hospitality. 
So the first guy who's got no bread when his friend shows up at the house, he has no way to show hospitality. That is like a huge no-no. So he goes to another friend, knocks at the door at midnight, and says, hey, I need bread, dude. Come on, you know how serious this is. But see, the way houses were there, you got a one-room house, usually with a kind of an elevated floor sort of that you walk onto in the middle, and then a lower floor where the animals would be. Okay, so you got basically the animals uh, and then a step up would be some servants, maybe if you're wealthy enough. And then all you and your wife and the kids are on one big sort of place in the middle. And you can imagine the knock on the door and a kid goes, <laughs> the cow, <laughs> I need bread, dude. Give me some bread. The guy's like, would you get out of here? We're already in bed. Dude, bread. <laughs> And what does Jesus say when this happens? Verse 8, he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or shamelessness, you might say, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, now here's the issue. In this scenario, this is why it's a contrast, the giver just wants to be left alone. The giver wants to ask the, the asker, to go away. Fine. Here. Get out. That's all he wants. The asker just wants to look good. I don't look stupid not being able to show hospitality. And Jesus is saying, listen, if in this scenario where neither the, the, the asker or the giver have the right motivations, if the result was still good, how much more a willing God? How much more? See, often this is taught by the fact that it's like what God really wants is perseverance. Persevere in prayer. Persevere in prayer. He definitely wants us to persevere. But that's actually not the point of the story. The point of the story is the contrast. How, how willing we can be, which we'll see this come up, come up again in a bit, compared to how willing God already is to meet us in our needs. See, it's, it's really not our persistence that makes God willing. It's God's willingness that makes us persistent. Do you get that? It's the fact that God actually cares about us. That God actually wants to help us every day, no matter how bad you woke up or how late you woke up or whatever the case might be. He wants to help us every day. He's willing. Now, we none of us... None of us should want popcorn, a life, a prayer life that's only popcorn prayers. You know what I mean? Popcorn prayers. Oh, God, help me again. Oh, Lord, here I am. We shouldn't want a prayer life that's just like that. Just like we shouldn't want a relationship that's just like, hey, and then you walk off. We, want, we should want more to relationships, shouldn't we? But does that mean that God doesn't hear our popcorn prayers? No, He absolutely does. He absolutely does. So what does He do? He then gives these imperatives or commands, okay? So he gives us a story to contrast God's willingness. Now in verse 9, he's going to give us commands in light of God's willingness. These are imperative. These are commanded. Okay? These aren't suggestions. These are commands. Listen. He says, I tell you, ask, command, and it will be given to you. Seek, it's a command, and you will find. Knock, it's a command, and it will be opened to you. That's what he says. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's commanding us to pray because of who He is. 
again, I, I'm, I'm using, a, for, for our sakes, I'm using a lot of human relationship metaphors, but hopefully this helps us understand. When you have a close relationship and you know the person you're close to is hurting and they won't talk to you about it, how do you feel about that? You, you grieve for them because you know they're hurting and you want to help them. You grieve for yourself because you're going, what can I do to prove to you that you, you can trust me in this situation? And so we say sometimes, we plead with those that we love, tell me, please, I, I, I want to hear what you're saying. You can tell me what's going on. Now, here's the reality. Sometimes we get that wrong, don't we? Even when we want that person starts telling them and we start giving advice they didn't ask for, it doesn't go right. But again, with God, because of who God is, because of who our triune God is, we can go to God and say, God, yes, here's what I need. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm asking for. I'm not sure what you want to do, so this is the door I'm knocking on. God says, great, do that. Do it. Because he's that willing. See, this is the access that Jesus expects. This is the access that Jesus provides for us so that we can expect when we pray. So we go from a story to contrast God's willingness to commands to obey in light of God's willingness to now promises to believe about God's willingness. Look at verse 10. He says, listen, for everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Do you believe that? Everyone who asks receives. So is anybody here not fit under the category of anyone or everyone? <laughs> anyone here not an everyone? Whosoever. Everyone. We're going to put this into practice in just a minute. But the issue is that, that God wants us, Jesus wants us to expect an access to our Heavenly Father that He provided for us, that He's always enjoyed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, great verse to memorize. It says, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we can expect mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. What's God's throne made of? Grace. Grace. Did <laughs> you say gold? No. Oh. <laughs> Something much more valuable. God's throne, God's throne is made of grace. The God who is the perfect judge has, has, and who hates injustice and deals with all injustice, that God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son to die in our place, to take on that wrath on Himself, so that we can be fully forgiven, and not just forgiven, not just like, okay, fine, just go away, but forgiven and say, now you're adopted in the family, and you have access to me as a beloved child. Man, that's how willing our God is. This is what he calls us to believe. Yes, but I blow it. Yeah, but it's a throne of grace. You can receive mercy. Yeah, but okay, I, I know God forgives, but I got so much need. Yeah, yeah, grace, more grace is available in time of need. There's no excuse for us not to go to our Father because He loves us as much. He loves us so much. So here's the last bit in verses 11 to 13. We talked about the access that Jesus expected. Now we need to see the goodness that Jesus experienced. Because what Jesus says in verses 11 to 13 is meant to show us the goodness of God that He experienced. Because this is what's motivating Him to tell us to expect and experience the same thing. 
He says in verse 11, notice, What father among you, if he asks for a fish, will instead, I'm sorry, uh, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, I used to love to be goofy with my kids when they were little. I'd do all kinds of stuff with them. I, I, I would wind them up. I would tease them. I would do all kinds of stuff. It was fun. Well, see, I still do. <laughs> Again, exposed. Yes. I still love winding my kids up. It's good fun. But I, I, there's times when I, I've gone too far and I've had to apologize, of course. Yes, there's times. But you know what I've never done? Never said, here's a poisonous animal. <laughs> I've never done that. I've never done that. I've never said, yeah, here's a snake, hold it. Maybe maybe with a fake one. I might have done with a fake one, maybe. <laughs> but not a real snake. Why? I love my children. I'm not going to do anything that's actually going to put them in harm's way. Now, what Jesus is, is saying here is just really important. He's saying he's not devaluing natural affection. He's not saying, oh, how your parents love you doesn't really mean anything. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, most of us, even as mediocre parents, really love our kids. We really love our kids. But God provides something better. God provides something better. And this is the thing that he wants us to see. There's a goodness that we get in our relationship with God that we cannot get in any other human relationship. The goodness that Jesus experienced, the goodness that he's provided for us to experience. And here's how we experience it. Look at verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus said, okay, this is the great, here's some great news for you. God doesn't just want to give you good gifts. It's not like we, as we go to a heavenly father or our earthly fathers or our earthly parents and we say, could you, can I have an egg? And, they, and God says, hey, you can get the good egg? Check out this egg. Whoa. I got even better gifts for you. No, God doesn't just say, I'm going to give you something from me that's better. God says, I'm going to give you myself. It's not just something from God, but God himself. The Holy Spirit being God, God says, I'm giving you myself. I mean, I mean, isn't that, again, going back to human relationships, isn't this the thing we value about human relationships? We really value having close relationships when things go pear-shaped in our life? Because at least we have someone. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, as great as our human parents can be, he's saying, when you are willing to ask, when you're willing to, when you understand what I've done, what I've experienced with my Father, you can now experience because of what I've done for you. And you approach me this way. What I'm wanting to give you is myself. I'm wanting to be that forever friend, that good, good Father. I'm wanting to be the one that you can know personally. Now again, we, we want to see this as it applies to corporate prayer. That is, not just us praying by ourselves in the secret place, which is a really important thing, but also us praying together and for each other. We want to see these things about Jesus' prayer life. We want to see the relationship He enjoyed and learn to enjoy that as we pray together. We, we want to we wanna recognize the access that Jesus expected 
and recognize we have that access in Jesus to God. We don't have to hold back. We don't got to go, I ain't good enough. Well, you know, but Jesus is. We want to recognize, listen, the goodness that Jesus experienced, the goodness that Jesus experienced from God was God himself. He's always experienced that. He continued to experience that on earth, even when things were difficult. The only exception would be when he's being judged on the cross. And he did it so that we wouldn't have to be. He, he enjoys the Father now. And guess what? We can too through prayer. 